This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 68, April the 6th, 1984. This morning I'm going to do something a bit different than on some other occasions. I'm going to begin by referring to a book just as a kind of jumping-off point. The book is one just recently published by the Yale University Press. And the title is The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. The author, Robert L. Wilkin, W-I-L-K-E-N. Wilkin is professor of the history of Christianity at the University of Notre Dame. The book isn't a bad book. It's uh, a scholarly production. In other words, it's a great deal of research, a modest amount of insight, and is worth... uh, a few footnotes if you're doing something in the general area of the early church. But the thing that struck me most forcibly as I read this book is the fact that from beginning to end, uh, Wilkin dates everything not in terms of A.D. and B.C., before Christ and... uh, the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, A.D., but in terms of B.C.E. and C.E. Now, what is the meaning of that? Well, it's a way of denying that Christ ever came, really, and walking around the whole fact of Christianity. C.E. means common era. Common era. Hardly fit usage for a professor of the history of Christianity at the University of Notre Dame. Now, as I said, it's not a bad book, better than the average scholarly book, although he treats the Greco-Roman scholars with consideration and respect and uh, leans over backwards to be critical of the Christians of the early church. The title tells you the subject, the Christians as the Romans saw them, and the men he deals with are Pliny, Galen, Celsus, Porphyry, and Julian the Apostate, the Emperor. In other words, it's an academic analysis. What Wilkin does is to bypass something that I'm going to come to in a moment. But first I want to comment on the anti-Christianity shows by his form of dating, common era rather than Anna Domini, the year of our Lord. As some of you may recall, because some of you are familiar with much that I have done, during the 60s and early 70s in particular, I was very frequently on uh, college and university campuses as a speaker. I was speaking, in other words, when things were at their worst in terms of the demonstrations and riots and the like. I was in a number of situations that were very explosive, very angry sessions and the like. I spoke quite extensively at quite a few schools. And I would have to say that the really bad places where it was both difficult and irritating to speak, without exception, were the Christian or so-called Christian colleges and universities, Catholic and Protestant, no difference between the two of them. It seems that if they bear the name of Christ, they are determined to prove that they can uh, despise the faith and do it better than anyone else. And so it was a painful thing to appear at such campuses. I always preferred to go to a secular institution bad as they were at the time, and wild as some of the meetings were, there was not the same radical hatred for the faith, the venomous hatred for the faith, 
that you found at such institutions. Well, I said that Wilkin had uh, done a scholarly work, an academic attitude towards his subject. He dealt with a number of the respectable and prominent Greco-Romans who commented on the faith. He does not say what the man in the street thought about the Christians or what the people really thought but did not say when they wrote? Well, the answer to that would be, well, how can you uh, write about them in terms of a lack of documentation? We don't know how the man in the street felt. We don't know how the scholars who didn't comment as the men Wilkins studied felt. Or do we? Now, one thing is very clear. Before the New Testament canon was closed, before the last of the New Testament books had been written, all kinds of groups were latching onto Christianity. A variety of Gnostic heresies, beginning with Docetism, were already heavily into the Christian movement. Why? These were philosophical movements. They represented the major currents of the day. They represented influences from the Far East, especially India, filtered through Greek philosophy and infecting the whole Greco-Roman world. Now it is interesting that although when these scholars that Wilkins deals with attacked Christianity. All these Gnostic cults were already using Christianity. Why didn't they deal with those groups? Because they claimed to be Christian. They knew full well that Valentinianism and all the other forms of Gnosticism were calling themselves Christians. But you do not find that these critics of Christianity in the Greco-Roman world referred to those groups. Now, I submit a whole book could be written on that subject just by going to the patristic literature. The simple fact is that before the end of the first century, Christianity had such a position in the empire, although still a small group, that it was obviously commanding respect. This is why these Gnostic groups were latching on to Christianity. Sometime I intend to do some work on the subject, but for the present, all these groups already had the prestige of Greek philosophy. Why latch on to Christianity if it were not for the fact that no matter how much people attacked Christianity, in their hearts they respected it. They knew that here was a significant movement, however small. They knew that here were people who were doing something unusual and unique in history. So they borrowed the prestige. The greatest witness to the fact of the prominence of Christianity in the first, second, and third centuries was the fact that so many of these philosophical cults borrowed the Bible to misuse it and spoke of themselves in some sense as Christian. And these critics of Christianity never went after those groups. Only the Orthodox Church, the Orthodox believers. Imitation is always the sincerest form of flattery. <laughs> that's a remark that's been made often. And the fact that so many groups were borrowing the prestige of Christianity is to me a most significant fact. Everybody was trying to imitate Christianity. Now, one of the things we often read about in the 
attacks on the early church is the fact that these groups supposedly practiced all kinds of occult rites, sexual uh, immorality, ritually performed at the meetings, and so on. And, of course, uh, there are several reasons for this. One, to try to defame the church. But let's go a step further. Then as now, all kinds of groups try to borrow prestige and use it in the name of Christianity. Consider, for example, what we saw in this country in the past decade, which was greatly used by the press to attack the church. I heard it used again and again in courtrooms by state and federal prosecuting attorneys as a means of saying the church had to be controlled the Jim Jones case. But the fact is, Jim Jones was not a Christian. Jones had been a member with the U of the U.S. Uh, Communist Party, but he broke with it because it had turned against Stalin. And as Jones said, I loved Stalin. But he mellowed later in his feelings about the party and uh, specified <clears throat> in his will that his estate should go to the U.S. Communist Party. And he had ordered that seven million dollars belonging to the People's Temple should be transferred to the Soviet Union. Now, what was Jim Jones operating? Why, it was a Marxist operation, a communist cell under the facade of a church. Well, this was not unusual in the early church. The very fact that all kinds of groups, from esoteric groups and philosophical groups to apparently far-out immoral groups, were using the name of the church of Christ as a cover for their operations is significant. Moreover, in the persecutions that followed, you find no evidence that these groups were ever bothered. The Roman Empire knew who the real Christians were. They did not go after these other groups. Moreover, when they raised the charges of immorality, as they did, they didn't specify that at a particular place such and such a group does these things. At that point, they're very general. And of course, it's because they could not document any of their charges against the Orthodox Church. Well, at the same time, they knew what the early church was doing. I've called attention more than once to the fact that the church in those days was going around to the points where babies who could not be aborted were being disposed of. In Rome, it was under the bridges. There, the wild dogs would come and devour them. The Christians would keep a watch on those places and rescue the babies and pass them around to the church members. They did this in city after city throughout the empire. They were doing something to deal with a concrete problem, and it was an embarrassment to Rome. It manifested that these Christians had more love for their children, whom they were abandoning, than they had. They were taking care of their sick and often helping take care of the sick of others. They were taking care of their own numbers because, as Paul says, he that doth not care for his own, especially they of his own household, hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. To care for one's own meant to care for one's fellow Christians. So the church had a program of welfare. And it had a program for 
meeting human needs, not only in their circle, but outside their circle whenever possible. The people knew that. Then the churches of the early church were also providing justice for their members. 1 Corinthians 6 tells the Christians they're not to go to outside courts to the unbelievers. They are to judge the world in due time, that is, to rule it. Let them learn now in their own circles. By the time Rome fell, the bishops of the early church were providing the main courts of justice. As a matter of fact, Rome began to try to regularize that fact by appointing some of the church leaders to be prefects and other uh, positions were given to them in order to regularize what was already happening. People were bypassing the courts of the empire for the courts of the church. There's a great deal of material like this scattered throughout the patristic literature. No one seems interested in doing something about it. So, then and now, we have a great deal of silence about what is happening in the Christian world. I'm going to turn to something now that deals with the present in order to continue dealing with precisely what I've been talking about. Perhaps most of you have not heard of the problem in Southern California and Manhattan Beach, a, a suburb of Los Angeles, really, where preschool teachers in a private state-licensed uh, nursery school are facing sex charges. For example, in the Los Angeles Herald Examiner for Friday, March 23, 1984, on page 1, five former teachers at the Manhattan Beach Preschool were indicted by the Los Angeles County Grand Jury yesterday on charges that they had uh, sexually molested 100 young children at the school over the past 10 years. We're talking about rape, sodomy, oral copulation, and fondling. District Attorney Robert Filibosian said in announcing the indictments. Filibosian said the five defendants frightened the children into silence during the past decade by threatening to harm their parents. And to back up the threats, small animals were actually slaughtered in the children's presence in order to frighten them. And to frighten them so much, they wouldn't say anything, he said. The victims ranged in age from 2 to 13 at the time of the molestations, Philipposian said. Now, there's a great deal more to this. These uh, instances have since increased with each week the paper gives more charges. More children that they are finding were molested. Uh, the school was founded 23 years ago. Now, this is the interesting point. And by the way, let me say that the state agency responsible for licensing and inspecting child care facilities gave glowing reports of this facility. And uh, the State Department of Social Services report of the 1979 inspection of the preschool offers almost nothing but praise. I always enjoy visiting the school, which is well-run, well-staffed, and well-equipped, wrote DDS official Ruth Howell. Moreover, the school has received uh, numerous citations. As the head of the school said, and I quote, I have received four awards for outstanding community service. 68, the President's Award from the Chamber of Commerce, the second in 1974, from the Coordinating Council, an award of merit for outstanding services. The third was in 1977, the Rose and Scroll, the city's highest honor and tribute for outstanding community service and devotion to others. 
and the fourth was from Students of, Mir of Miracosta High in 1978, the Super Boaster Award of Merit. All this while this was going on and porno films were being made using these children. I could go on with the horrid and horrible details of this case. But let me quote what one person said. Again from the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. She demanded that the Board of Supervisors investigate problems in the county's child care facilities, some 200 of which are losing their licenses statewide each year in connection with child molestation and sponsor legislation to protect our community's greatest resource, our children. Well, I'm willing to bet that uh, new legislation won't remedy the matter. But get that. 200 such facilities are losing their licenses statewide each year in connection with child molestation. And these involve often long-standing problems, as with this particular Manhattan Beach school, which has at least a 10-year history of this kind of thing. Now I cite that because I have been in courts across country where Christians, churches attempting to have uh, preschool care for the children of the church are taken to court. Their only offense is not being licensed. What I've read here about California is true across country. Most of these cases are hushed up. Only the sensational nature of this case and the anger of some of the parents blew it out into the open, blew it wide open. 200 cases a year, and one of them hits the press. I'm sure in your state, this kind of thing is happening and nothing is being done about it. Well, the Christians, however, can have a good facility. It's in a church. Very ably run. But they can't get a license. What does state licensure mean? State control. Well, that's all. Obviously, the control is worthless and is bad because it means controls on your faith, but no controls on morality. How could something like that be going with at least a 10-year track record? They haven't attempted to go back earlier than that. And some of it has been turned up by the mothers as their older children who went to that school six, seven, eight, ten years ago were asked by their parents, "Was that didn't happen when you were there, did it? And the boy or girl says, yes. And then it pours out. I have cited this fact of child molestation on state-approved facilities at state-approved facilities in court cases and only angered all those present in the courtroom, on the bench, and in the prosecution. They get very huffy about it and tell me it has nothing to do with the case at hand. And I say it does because it makes clear that when this kind of thing is prevalent, State licensure is worthless. It does not protect the child. Well, Christians are doing a great deal across the country, and they're doing it against opposition, against the most bitter kind of hostility. About an hour ago, one of our staff members, Douglas Kelly, uh, telephoned from Mississippi. 
Douglas's teaching there now at the Reformed Theological Seminary, teaching systematic theology. His father has been quite ill, and he was home a week or so ago to visit with his father, who is in the hospital now, and with his mother. This was just after the tornado, unique in the history of North and South Carolina, ripped through that area and did a great deal of devastation. Now here's a fact that you probably did not read in the press. I certainly did not. The tornado leveled some small towns drastically. Immediately, the Christian community in nearby towns and cities organized to do something about it. In some instances, within a very short time, they were there on the scene to try to help. For example, in one of those small communities, churchwomen in another area prepared 200 chickens plus a great deal of other food to take to that town and feed those people immediately because they were homeless and foodless. They were met by state and federal and Red Cross officials who halted them, seized the food and threw it into trash cans with hungry people there unfed and told them, this food is not government inspected and you cannot use it. Now, this is what's happening in this country. Don't tell me 1984 is down the road. It's here right now. But it's not in the press. Now, that's the kind of thing that's happening. And you don't see either party aroused or alarmed by it. All they want is your vote to enhance their power and to continue their evil course. Think that over, seizing food from Christian women and throwing it into garbage cans. When there are hungry people there, all they're doing is to inspect the damages and to see what kind of things that they can do and preparing to set up loan funds for disaster relief and that sort of thing. And the Christians were there with food, with blankets, and with other things. Last week, from Sunday night to Tuesday night, I was in Eugene, Oregon, at a closed meeting of some prominent pastors. Pastors who are outstanding leaders. You might say they were, in their own way, a group of bishops because each of the men there had been responsible for starting a number of churches. One of them had, uh, through his church, parenting and discipling a number of other congregations, been responsible for 51 churches, counting his own. One of the men was John Garlington, a black pastor from Portland, Oregon, pastor of a very strong and superior church there. And John Garlington told us that with countless numbers of black children without foster homes because the foster parents program blocks a lot of people, especially Christians, from getting children or sets up so many rules and regulations that it isn't worth having them because they want to control you and your family. But John said you could take every black child who is homeless in Watts or in Harlem or any other big city 
and walk down the streets with them and find a Christian family for every child if they could have control of them without any strings attached. There wouldn't be a single black child homeless, he said, anywhere in the country. I believe him. As a matter of fact, I had something along that line in my Institutes of Biblical Law, Volume 2, on page 232. I'd like to read it to you to remind you of what can be done. This is an article from the Birmingham News of August 4, 1975, and I quote, A Tuskegee Institute professor has completed a two-year study of one of the most fascinating aspects of life in Alabama's Black Belt, informal adoptions. Dr. Lewis W. Jones, director of the Center for Rural Development, found that black families have, by tradition, bypassed legal red tape in providing homes for children whose parents have separated or died or those who have been born out of wedlock. In Lowndes and Wilcox counties, 28% of the black families have kin folks other than their own offspring living with them. By contrast, only 4% of the white families were included in this category. I chose these two counties because they are almost 100% rural, he said. Life hasn't changed much here over the years. They have not had customs disturbed by social change. In most cases, he found the substitute guardian was a grandmother or aunt, likely over 50 years old, with an income of less than 250 a month. In many of these cases, he added, the families could, have well, could very well lose custody of the children they are keeping if they filed for adoption. They would not meet minimal standards so far as income and the like. Be that as it may, he noted, most of the children he encountered were content, well-fed, and shared in the closeness of family living. In fact, he added, this phenomenon of informal adoption has woven a tight kinship network within black families. This practice has been going on for generations. It goes back more than 100 years. No black child in this area goes without a home. Even though some of the families may not meet standards set for legal adoption, Dr. Jones does not fear an invasion into the black belt by officials bearing legal requirements for adoption. The idea of adoption is to find good homes for children. The people here have done it without any help from the courts. Last year in Alabama, of the 319 children placed for adoption, only 48 were black. Most of these were in urban areas. Finding homes for black children is long been a problem for social agencies, unquote. Yes, it has been because of the controls they exercise. I hope they haven't, since that study was made, invaded those two counties with their controls. Well, this is the kind of thing that has been done and can still be done. During my travels in one state in the Midwest, a young couple, very fine Christians, but childless, told me they had decided that they would become foster parents since adoption was virtually impossible in their area. The social welfare worker turned them down. Since their home was a good one and they saw no reason why they should have been refused, they demanded to know why. Well, their hot water heater was five degrees too high. They said, well, we'll reset it. That's no problem. Well, no, they were being refused. And finally, after some... Uh, questioning, the social welfare worker said very irritably, there's no way you're going to get children with the kind of faith you have. In other words, their Christianity 
That was the problem. That, by the way, is not the first time I've heard about the uh, hot water heater being used as an excuse. Now, this is what is taking place. Of course, Lester Roloff fought, I think it was seven or eight years in the case. He's been dead, I think, about two years now. It's still not settled. And I was involved in a couple of those trials. He was jailed twice. But he has a remarkable record as far as caring for the children. Now they're expanding the facilities to house at Corpus Christi 15,000 children. Their work has been remarkable. I know I have been there. I've seen what they're doing. I've talked to the children. Well, They can take food from Christian women and throw the food in trash cans. So why not throw Roloff into jail, as they have done in the past twice, and Sullivan a couple of times, in Nebraska, and others elsewhere. The state is God walking on earth once. No opposition. Just this past week, I received in the mail from Dennis Klutzing in Vermont a copy of something from the Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Farming Magazine. Pages 822 following the issue of uh, Saturday, March 17, 1984. Now... This article is entitled, Dairy Farming Helps Change Young Lives. It's called, and I quote, It's called the hill, God's mountain, and includes over 300 acres of rolling countryside. Smiles are easily found here. Cooperation, compassion, and sharing are in abundance. Lives change. Former outcasts are transformed into good citizens and active Christians. This haven is the Teen Challenge Farm and Training Center, located outside of Rarsburg, Berks County. The training center includes a print shop, ceramics shop, auto body shop, greenhouse, gymnasium, chapel, classrooms, and a dairy farm. The purpose of the center is to rehabilitate men with life-controlling problems, mainly alcohol and drug addiction. Students come from a wide variety of backgrounds and must go through an induction center where they have demonstrated their interest in improving themselves and in becoming a Christian. Once at the center, training emphasizes building Christian character, upgrading schooling, and learning one of the 21 vocational trades at the center to prepare them for a new life in society once again. The teaching at the center stresses the application of biblical principles uh, to relationships in the family, church, chosen vocation, and the community. One of the best means of teaching these principles at the center is the dairy farm located within the complex. 115 Holstein cows are milked twice a day by students who volunteer to learn farming. Approximately 500 acres are tilled by students who learn that farmers work in all kinds of weather, even when they are sick. Replacement stock and bulls are raised by the students in addition to some sheep. Their herd currently averages 15,762 pounds milk, 3.7% butterfat, with 586 pounds butterfat. The herdsmen predict production will surpass 16,000 pounds in a month or two. The farm is able to support itself, the staff, and still maintain contributions to the main complex on the hill. Students are housed, I'm skipping around, four to a room. They have to learn to deal with other, each other's personalities, Martin explains. The center can accommodate 240 students. The average age of the students is 24. There is no upper limit, 
but the minimum age is 16 years. Well, there's much more to this article, but uh, a little more. Martin continues, we're interested in teaching them good work habits. The farm is not what we push on them. The work habits are, though. Uh, they begin to appreciate the products uh, more, the herdsman Sager adds. Now they appreciate what it takes for that gallon of milk, Martin says. The experience they get here will last a lifetime. We have installed in them what a farm is. Now we have city friends that know what a farm is. Anyone is welcome to visit and tour Teen Challenge anytime. We're not fancy, but we try to do it right, Sager says. Uh, periodic open houses and special programs are held through the year, and the public is always welcomed. Calls and inquiries are invited. Write to Teen Challenge Training Center, Box 98, Rarsburg, R-E-H-R-E-R-S-B-U-R-G, 19550 or call 717-933-4181. Well, this is just a small portion of the article, but if you do write for information, remember, it takes money to operate that place and close $5 or more to help them out. Well, this is just one among many, many such groups that are operating today across the country. Both Catholics and Protestants are doing remarkable things in trying to meet the needs of people in trouble, of being helpful one to another, of ministering to fellow believers and to non-believers. Work is underway among prisoners ex-convicts, drug addicts, a great deal of remarkable work there. We have rescue missions all over the country. These are something to concern yourselves with because today the cities are trying to legislate rescue missions out of existence. Find out what your local rescue mission is doing what the problems they face are. The press never carries anything about the fact that they are trying to legislate them out of existence. But they are. We had something about one that Dorothy and I visited about two years ago. And uh, it was in Santa Ana, California run by Lewis Whitehead, a black ex-marine. A remarkable facility. What Lewis Whitehead has done is to set up a center that is first class because he believes, as I do, that anything you do for the Lord has to be first class. It doesn't look like a skid row place because it isn't. It's an outpost of Christ's kingdom. And there are people are taken care of. There there is a Christian witness. Every attempt was made to legislate it out of existence about a year and a half ago. And at that time, Lewis Whitehead sent out the word. And some of his alumni, now good working men or businessmen in the community, turned out. Three hundred of them crowded into the council chambers. And the council, the, uh, the city council, thought it was going to slip the th thing through on the docket with no one knowing about it. And they had to back down. But they have not ended their efforts at intimidation. This is routine. It's one of many kinds of things being done. Then, another area. One of the things we do not appreciate is what the family does. There is more child care by families, relatives, 
than by any other agency in the United States. The family is caring for its own. And if we would do what John Garlington says, every black child and I think every white child would have a home. There was a time in the early years of this country, well, up to World War I at least, I believe, when in the eastern cities with immigrants pouring in in great numbers, many of them not well, because earlier we did not have health examinations. They would die, and the children would be street children, homeless. Christian agencies took care of those children. They put them on trains and shipped them to the Midwest and other areas to farm families that wanted children. And those Street children, homeless, wound up with excellent homes and a good life. That's what Christians did. That's the kind of thing that has been done generation after generation. What happened, however, after World War One and World War Two was that we had the full implications of pietism hitting this country the retreat into the rapture fever mentality, withdrawing from the world and waiting for the end to come, and doing nothing about the problems under their noses. And so the state was allowed to take over and shut down Christian orphanages, Christian child care facilities, and uh, homes for the aged, and every kind of agency that Christians once networked this country with. So now we're having to fight to recapture ground we gave up. And we're facing the evils of the state. More elderly people and more children are cared for by families. A tremendous number. Because the family is reviving. One of the very fine books written in recent years by Zimmerman and Cervantes entitled The Family now out of print for some years predicted in 1959 that we were in the beginnings of the greatest revival and strength of family life in the history of the world I believe they were right it's the family that has been behind the Christian school movement it has been the family that has been concerned about what's happening in foster care. And John Saunders of our staff is in Southern California right now for a convention of foster parents to deal with some of these issues. We'll hear more about that in another one of our easy chairs. So a great deal is taking place now because of this family revival. And this is why there is such a, a great deal of hostility to the family on the part of the state. This is why everything is being done to break the authority of the family, to interfere with it. We have laws on the books that take care of child abuse, but we hear a great deal about child abuse cases when legislatures are in session and someone is proposing greater controls that will not eliminate child abuse but will control the good family. So the good family is being increasingly pressured. Anytime they cross the state's purview, there is trouble. So we face some real problems in our time. And we had better be aware that these are very important for us as Christians to confront. We need to revive the families. We need to revive Christian agencies. We need to fight on issues like what happened in North Carolina. We need to tell those agencies we can do it and to create agencies that will. 
and be ready to go to court and fight these people and continue fighting because it's a battle for the life of the faith. I began this with comments about a book by a professor, Robert L. Wilkin, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them. And I called attention to the fact that the dating in his book is not B.C. and A.D. It's B.C.E. and C.E., Common Era. Before Common Era and the Common Era. Even in the minor thing of B.C. and A.D., they want to eliminate Christ. Now, in a sense, it's a childish thing, but it does indicate the extent of their hatred, their venom for everything that is associated with Christ. We will not understand the world we are dealing with until we understand these facts. A few weeks back I read about what was happening to aborted babies, how they were being collected, these dead babies, to make collagen in order to make cosmetics. I heard from a number of you, and in fact, that portion of the easy chair was played on uh, some Christian radio stations here and there. And one of the comments again and again was, I did not realize how far gone we are until you read that article. Well, how about the North Carolina tornado case and the destruction of the food? Think about that. And think about the fact that a lot of this is never reported. No one knows about it. And it's only accidentally that uh, sometimes this data turns up. Christians had better realize that for cosmetic reasons we are not told these things because they don't want us to see the ugliness of the modern state that a welfare state is an evil monster and it is out to destroy Christianity and the family. We are in a war unto the death and Christians had better wake up to what is happening. Well, in between a number of other subjects, I'm going to deal with this matter once again in the very near future because it is, I believe, urgently important. Until then, thank you for listening and God bless you.